Well, we pick up again um, where we started last time, just to kind of give context to all of this. Verse 13 of chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take, the, uh, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to love you with all of our heart mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached this morning. Give us a greater love for your word. Write it upon our hearts. Fill our mouths with it. Help us to know it and to speak it to others, that they might know the great hope and power found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sometimes there's nothing like an old movie to kind of bring together an idea. Cool Hand Luke. Those young people probably have no clue what that movie is. That's okay. There's a famous scene in that movie when Cool Hand Luke has been brought back. He had run away from the prison that he was in. He was on a chain gang. Obviously, didn't like what was happening on the old chain gang. And when you get caught running away from that particular southern prison, you were put in the box. And so he was released from the box, and there's this pivotal scene where you have the boss man and you have the warden, and they're reshackling Luke to put him back in the chain gang. And the warden begins to wax poetic, so to speak, about the fact that he had warned Cool Hand Luke about these things, that he had spoken to him for his own good, to which Luke, being the perfect anti-hero makes the snide comment of, Warden, I wish you wouldn't be so good to me sometimes. To which he gets struck and cast sort of down, rolls down the little hill that's there in front of, uh, down to all the rest of the guys in the chain gang. And that is when the warden says these words that most people may have heard before. What we have here is failure to communicate. In other words, Cool Hand Luke hadn't been listening. He had rebelled against that which was spoken. 
And the warden saw this as a failure to communicate. We're going to have here in the Gospel of John the first of many failures to communicate. We're going to see here how Jesus speaks and no one really understands what he's saying. It's only later that the disciples will understand what Jesus really meant. But this is the pattern that's going to to kind of take over this part of the gospel as we go through the book of signs. Jesus speaks and almost no one really understands what he's actually saying. We're going to see it with Nicodemus as we start next week in chapter 3. We're going to see it with the woman in the well, the disciples repeatedly, but most profoundly, of course, with the Jewish leaders who come to question him. And that's where we start with this failure to communicate. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is the new meeting place for God and man. Let's begin with the unfortunate truth that unbelief always looks for more signs. Unbelief always looking for more signs. There's a word that gets left out in the translation here in uh, verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him. It's the same word that we're going to see in uh, verse 19 when Jesus answered them. It says, basically it's telling us that what happens here is directly connected in a response to the cleansing of the temple that we looked at last week. In other words, they want to know why he did this, or not necessarily why he did it, but why he thought he could do it. In other words, who are you to think you can clear out the temple. Show us a sign that will indicate to us your great worth and dignity and authority and power. Because for all we know, you're just a Galilean bumpkin. Who are you? Give us a sign. And so they ask, what sign do you show us? Now, John Calvin... D.A. Carson and Martin Lloyd-Jones all consider the fact that Jesus, by himself, with a little whip made of cords, cleared the entire temple court of all the salesmen and all the livestock to be a sufficient sign for them that he's somebody to be reckoned with. Because, I don't know, if I were to go into a room, a building that size and trying to drive everybody out, I'm sure somebody would have the presence of mind to silence me rather quickly. Someone surely would be able to knock me down or whatever. So they see this as something as the reality that these men have missed a sign, and actually they're going to keep missing signs. It's sort of like when you don't pay attention to those signs on the road and you don't realize you're going in the wrong direction. That's these guys. That's them. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the Jews were always looking for signs. Verse 22, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. And so Paul admits this. He, He recognizes this. He states this, but he doesn't necessarily state why they're always looking for signs. Jesus does. In Matthew 12, which is a a similar passage, he's asked for a sign for something. And we see this is also repeated in Matthew 16, verse 4. But here in 12, 39, Jesus answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so in those situations, when they ask for signs, Jesus basically says that you are an evil and adulterous generation. And that is the reason that you keep seeking signs. They're evil, and that they've, they've moved away from God's law and God's commands and precepts and everything else, the way of the Lord. Uh, their, their hearts are twisted. They love evil, even though they think they don't. But that word adulterous, an adulterous generation, why would he call them an adulterous generation? Well, adultery. I've never done it, so I don't, I think I know what causes it, but I don't know firsthand, and I hope never to know firsthand. But it would seem to me that one of the causes for it is a profound lack of contentment within the marriage relationship. That instead of um, accepting your partner with all of their strengths and weaknesses, that you begin to long for someone who doesn't have those weaknesses. Who meets the needs that you think are so very important because they're not being met by that person. And so you begin to be attracted to someone who is not, or sorry, who is what your spouse isn't. And so it would seem that for many people, anyway, Adultery is the root, or sorry, is the, is the result of this profound lack of contentment within a marriage relationship. Whether that is physical, whether that is emotional, we, Amy and I just found of uh, someone we know <clears throat> who discovered their husband had sent over 2,000 text messages to someone at work, and it wasn't about work. This generation was like that, in that they were not content with God. They were not content with the dynamics of the relationship with God. They were not content with his ways in working within his people. And we have to be honest that that is not just a time of Jesus problem. That is a time of us problem as well. There is a culture within what's broadly called Christianity in this country, that is not content with God in his ways. They're always looking for signs. They're always looking for something new. Preachers who handle snakes, who get bit and die. That's part of what that is. A lack of contentment with the, the purity of the gospel and the means of grace that God has ordained. A looking for the spectacular somehow. And, you know, we've talked about some of these crazy things before, like the guys who built the motorcycle jump ramp over the pulpit. and People discontent with the preaching of the word, wanting ears tickled and eyes dazzled. That problem hasn't gone away. That problem still exists. So these people that Jesus is speaking to, these religious leaders, did not rest in God's word in the ordinary means of grace. They were thirsting for the spectacle. Give me the sign. Show me who you are. In verse 23, we see, it's not, it's, this is after, you know, spoken after this 
confrontation with the, the Jewish leaders. But we see that as John sums up this trip to Jerusalem for the Passover, that Jesus performed many signs. There were miracles, we don't know how many, he doesn't record them, but there were many miracles that he performed while he was in Jerusalem that functioned as signs as to who he actually was. We see that Jesus does not perform signs on request. (laughs) Plenty of signs, but not according to the whim and fancy of those who demand them. And I think of all of those atheists and all of those different debates with all of those Christians who utter those silly words, if God really exists, I want him to show himself right now. God does not answer our demands like that. He asks rather that we submit to him and receive the signs he already gives as opposed to seeking more signs. And that's the problem with this unbelief. It does not receive the signs already given but looks for more. Always looking for more. But about these, pe- about these signs, it says that some believed in his name. Now, it's really interesting to me. Because that's the exact phrase with the exact words that we find in chapter 1, verse 12. Remember, at first it says that uh, his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, those who believed in his name or on his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And so my mind, I don't know about your mind, my mind goes, uh-huh, wait a minute. What's going on here? Have they received this? Because it looks like from the surface that they have done exactly what that verse in chapter 1 says. But it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus was a little distant from them. Remember? We've talked about the meaning of that word believe in Greek that can have that idea of to trust or entrust oneself. Okay, so it's the same word that talks about Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them or entrust himself to them just as they, for some reason, were entrusting themselves to him to some degree. But Jesus did not entrust himself. Why did he not welcome them if... On the surface, they're believing in his name. He sees their heart, according to John, which is in keeping with 1 Samuel 16, when the prophet Samuel has been sent to find the new king of Israel because Saul isn't working out because Saul really wasn't God's guy. He was the guy he he gave Israel because of their foolishness and sin. So now he's, he's sending Samuel to find the one that he wants to be king, And he says to Samuel, (coughs) because of course Samuel sees all these handsome, tall, strong sons. And of course he's sent to the youngest son, David. Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the only way I can really understand this is that from John's perspective, looking at the surface, they believed. But when Jesus looks into their hearts, he knows that they don't believe, but that they will join those who are looking for more and more signs. They have a superficial belief, but not a rested, confirmed belief in who he is. 
They're willing to welcome Jesus as the miracle worker, but not necessarily welcome Jesus as the suffering Savior. And so Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows no one needs to tell them, tell him what's in them. He already sees and knows. So they're like the Jewish leaders. Their faith is but a vapor that disappears in the heat of the morning sun. And so unbelief and superficial faith always want signs to prove that God is real. They can't trust God. Secondly, <coughs> the resurrection is the ultimate sign that Jesus offers. He doesn't say no completely. He says the only sign I'll give you is this one. Okay? And his answer, in a sense, is almost too incredible to be true. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. One thing that, is, that I noted here is that a different word is used from earlier in this passage. When he cleared the temple, there's one word that's used, and now he mentions a different word that's used. The one that he uses here refers more specifically to the shrine, the place where the altars are. It does not encompass where the courts are. Okay? So Jesus is talking about the holy place and the most holy place. This idea of the, sh the shrine where all the important stuff happens. <coughs> he challenges them. It's not, I will destroy this. But he says, you destroy this temple. You destroy this shrine. This Greek word has that idea of to loosen, to disassemble. And maybe you're twisted like me and immediately go, Disassemble? Short circuit. Oh, that silly little movie from the 80s. With robot number five. Sort of almost like Frankenstein's monster gets shocked with electricity and comes to life and has a mind of his own. And he hears that they're going to disassemble him. To take him apart. And he runs away until he can find a way to communicate to his creator, who's not named Frankenstein, that he's alive and, of course, he runs into Ali Sheedy, and that's probably the movie that shipwrecked her career right there, I think. <laughs> Even though it made lots of money, and, there was, and, it, and incredulously, there was a sequel. But anyway, to take apart. Jesus says, take me apart. Take me to pieces. Destroy me. But they, and here's the failure to communicate, they think... He's talking about Herod's temple. It was begun in you know, 19 or 20 B.C. It still wasn't done. For 46 years, they've been working on this. And so, <coughs> this puts the events probably around 26, 27 A.D. on our time scale. Okay? Still not done. Not going to be done until 63 A.D., seven years before it's destroyed. And so they're saying, you know, basically saying, it's taken us 46 years to get this far, and you think you're going to be able to build this thing in a day? They're completely missing his point. Because it's a spiritual thing, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, 
that can only be discerned by the Spirit. And they lack the Spirit. Therefore, they don't get it. And so the failure to communicate is not that Jesus is using the wrong words, that Jesus, you know, is not very a skilled communicator. He shouldn't be working for a PR firm. The point is really that they are spiritually dull, spiritually dead. And so they cannot perceive that which he is really saying, and so they're interpreting it in a way that they can understand it. And we'll see that, as I said again, next week when we get to Nicodemus. This is not the last time they would twist these words or misunderstand these particular words. In Mark 14, for instance, when Jesus is on trial before <clears throat> the religious leaders, there are some false witnesses that come forward and they say, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple, though it is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And so they're twisting the words of his testimony. They're adding to the words of his testimony to make him look wrong and crazy. That's what happens. When you have an agenda, you twist that which you hear into something which suits your purpose. We sort of experienced that. We got a phone call from the other insurance company in the accident and they were trying to convict Amy by her words, but they had twisted and left out her words. That's what these guys were doing in this trial. Twisting the words of Jesus to convict him of a crime. <clears throat> so, Jesus really means that they will destroy him, not he will destroy it. See, they really weren't listening at all. In other words, the reproach of Jesus has begun. Remember last week, we talked about how the um, apostles remembered from Psalm 69, verse 10. Zeal for your house has consumed me. They remembered that part of it. And I ask you to remember the second part of it. Because it says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Those who reproach God are now about to reproach His Son, Jesus, in its beginning right here. And they're twisting His words and using them against Him. But Jesus says that though this reproach is going to culminate in the crucifixion in which He is destroyed and killed, on the third day, He will raise Himself up. Now that, that's the astounding part. That's better than building a building in three days. Bringing a dead person to life. Anybody here done that? Anyone here been physically dead and brought back? Wait three days first? How was he able to do this? Verse, uh, sorry, chapter 1 in verse 4 reminds us that he had the power of life in himself. So Jesus was, <clears throat> shall we say, not raised by a third party, 
Now we know from the testimony of the rest of Scripture that he was raised by the Father, he was raised by the Spirit. We recognize that. But he also says here and in other places that he raised himself. How is he able to do this? How is a mere man able to do this? Well, no mere man can. This is one of the signs that he is indeed the Son of God. Because he has power in himself to do this. It's important. I mean, people have to reckon with this. It's a sign that he gives. Now let's think for a moment. There's a reason why we read from Luke this morning. That we read the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember the story? The rich man wants Lazarus, wants Lazarus to be sent back so he could, he could warn that the, the rich man's family so they don't end up where he is. And Father Abraham says, hey, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Oh, no. Again, this, he's symbolizing, in a sense, the adulterous and evil generation. No, no, no. If you send someone back from the dead, then they'll believe and he says, even if one were to be raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And so there are, from, there are many for whom the fact of the resurrection is insufficient for them to believe. There are many who are not convinced by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because their presupposition is one of unbelief. And that this is therefore not possible. This cannot happen in their closed system worldview. But Tim Keller notes this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. In other words, don't evaluate him on the basis of his teaching and whether it suits your viewpoint. Because he claimed that he was going to rise from the dead, if he did not, it doesn't matter how much you like his teaching, it's craziness. Because he's crazy. But if he really did come back from the dead after three days then no matter how much you don't like what he said, you are compelled to believe it, precisely because of who he is. And so you have to begrudgingly, at first perhaps, say, all right, I'll believe everything he said, not just the, the little bits and pieces I want to be true. You recognize that as one who raised himself from the dead, you have to accept the whole Jesus, the whole kit and caboodle, and submit to those things that you may not be too wild about. And we all have those places. We all did before we were Christians, and most of us after becoming Christians, we still have those places we struggle with what Jesus says. There are things we wish he hadn't have said, commands we wish he hadn't have given. We all have those. But because he is the Son of God, risen from the dead, we should listen. We should embrace instead of being discontent. And so the sign that Jesus gives to them 
about his authority is that he is the Son of God by virtue of the resurrection. Thirdly, and just as importantly, Jesus, the new temple, suffers for the sin of his people. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in when we were talking about the, the wedding in Cana, the, the function of a sign is that it, it points to something. And it says, every sign says something about Jesus. And it may also say something about us. But, <clears throat> so what does this sign that he offers say about Jesus? It says that this one person with two natures is the true and living temple. He is the place where God and man meet in a more profound way than they have ever met before. This means that the tabernacle, which was where, you know, the tent of meeting where Moses met with God, which was later, you know, you have the temple that was built. So it was not, they're no longer a wilderness people moving to and fro. They're now a people who are stabilized within the promised land. They have a place that God has appointed. They've built a, a, a larger, so to speak, tent of meeting where they would meet with God all the time. Where they would have the holy place and the most holy place. That the tabernacle and the temple really point to Jesus. They're types that are fulfilled in Jesus. It's almost like a new tabernacle because he's he's moving again, so to speak. And that's part of what makes that profound sentence in chapter 1 that he took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the new temple for his people. Fulfilled in Christ, the shadows from the Old Testament. There's a reason why we had Mike read from Jeremiah 26 this morning. That's because what Jeremiah does there is very similar to what Jesus does here in other places. Jeremiah prophesied that the temple and Jerusalem were going to be destroyed because of the sin of God's people in Judah. Okay, the northern kingdom had already been carted off to Assyria because of their sin. All that was left were the two tribes in the southern kingdom, you know, Judah and Benjamin, and, and they're, God's saying, I'm going to cart you off to Babylon. And so Jeremiah has, from their perspective, been speaking against Jerusalem, speaking against this people, speaking against this house of God, this temple. Like Jesus, Jeremiah would be tried at the gate for speaking against it. 26.11 Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Sounds remarkably like the testimony and the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, doesn't it? They both spoke not so much against the city and the temple, but against the sin of the people. And they spoke about the sin of the people so that they might repent. It was a call 
to, re- to turn around, to return to God because you have forsaken Him. You might think you haven't, but you really did, Jeremiah is saying to them, and Jesus is saying to these people in His day. You might think you're there, you might think you're meeting with God, but you're not meeting with God. In community group in chapter 1 of Isaiah, we'll be talking more about that, my little plug and promo. Okay? The destruction that comes is judgment upon the people for their sin. They lose the dwelling place with God. For a Jew, there was nothing worse. But what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus says, I am going to be destroyed. I am going to be destroyed by your sin. I am going to be destroyed for the sin of my people. And so it functions in both of those ways. It was by their sin It was their their rejection of God. It was their unbelief in Him. It was their hatred for Him that caused them to hand Him over to the Romans to be crucified. And so He was destroyed, not just for no reason in particular, but on account of their sin. Because of their sin. And in fact, they sinned doing it. But it wasn't just that. Because he died in place of his people to bear their sin. He is, again, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. And so here, the temple will be temporarily destroyed so that a new and better fellowship can exist between God and sinners. A fellowship that takes place not in a physical building, but a fellowship that takes place through a person in whom both God and man exist at the same time. Jesus. A greater fellowship. And in fact, that physical building that they were so worried about was going to be destroyed in AD 70, it was. It was now rendered obsolete, as as the writer to Hebrews says. Therefore, it was no longer necessary, but no longer was it no longer necessary. It was now offensive in the sight of God because false sacrifices are being given up supposedly to Him that take away the glory of His Son. And He loves to give glory to His Son. And we should love to give glory to His Son. But because of their sin and their lack of repentance, it's going to be destroyed and they can no longer have the pretense of meeting with God. Judgment came again. And for the unrepented, it was the removal of the physical temple. And another exile spread throughout the world. Like with Jeremiah, Jesus' death would bring innocent blood on them and Jerusalem. Jeremiah 26, 15, Jeremiah says, 
Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Jesus, Matthew 23, says that upon this generation that was existing right then, all the blood of all the prophets is going to be paid for. The guilt of the killing of all of the prophets, including, well, Jeremiah wasn't killed there. He was carted off to Egypt against his will. But all of the prophets will fall upon that generation, culminating in the events of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. One generation from that. Within that generation. In fact... At the, tri- at the trial before, not really a trial, but uh, that moment when Pilate is there and he's asking whom they, he should release, and they say, you know, you know, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. They declare and part, may his blood be on us. And so it was. Now, Tim Keller talks about how, and I mentioned this before, the sign says something about Jesus and the sign says something about us. If Jesus is the true temple, if Jesus is the true temple that must be um, broken so that true fellowship with God and man can re-exist, that means that apart from Christ, we have no true fellowship with God. We might think we do, but we don't. Apart from Jesus... We have no fellowship, no relationship, no hope of kindness and mercy, compassion and love from the hand of God. His face is turned against us, not toward us, apart from Jesus. We see the severity of our sin in the destruction of both temples. I will not name my child to protect the guilty. But we have one right now who keeps wanting to avoid discipline with this phrase, but I'm sorry. As though I'm sorry takes away a world of guilt. As if it somehow takes away the pain you have caused to other members of the family and to yourself. And as though that somehow mom or dad should go, oh, okay, big hogs. And there should be no earthly consequences for actions. While I'm sorry is a good sentiment to have, it cannot erase the consequences. We need the blood of Christ to remove the eternal consequences of our sin. And those who truly believe will meet with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Christ. And they will enjoy their company. They will have true fellowship with the living God. People regularly misunderstood Jesus. People today regularly misunderstand Jesus. They try to have Jesus as the good teacher. They try to have Jesus as the good man. But they try to 
avoid Jesus as the eternal Son of God who suffers to save sinners. One appeals to the flesh and the other does not. The resurrection serves as a big stumbling block and dividing line for people. Those who don't believe in the resurrection essentially shouldn't believe anything he did or said. They're being inconsistent with themselves, which this is what people do. Those who do receive the resurrection as historical and true, significant, should embrace all that he says, including the fact that he is the new temple where we meet with God, the only temple where we can meet with God. And so, no Jesus, no worship. No Jesus, no fellowship with God. No Jesus, no grace. No Jesus, no mercy. For all of those things, it can either be N-O or K-N-O-W. So, where are you trying to meet with God? If it's not in Jesus, you have nothing. But if it is in Jesus, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. How Jesus loved his people enough to die in their place so that not only would he be raised up to new life, but that he would raise up his people to new life. We thank you for the change that is seen in the disciples after his resurrection, where it all clicks, where they believe, where they receive. And that is for us too. That you are able to remove the veil that covers people's eyes. You are able to shine your light into our hearts that we could grasp and no longer misunderstand what Jesus says. So we ask that you would be gracious to us. That you would continue to reveal more of who Jesus is to us. But more than that, that you would give us hearts to believe what Jesus says about himself. To embrace, to love what he says about himself. That indeed we become more and more of this new people. More and more of of who we were set apart to be. More and more of a beautiful bride awaiting Jesus. And may you accomplish that in your power and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.